Hey guys, happy February. I have exciting news. This month, we have three big SNABA CEU events coming up that you do not want to miss. If you haven't heard the news and you're living under a rock, you might have missed the fact that we now have CEUs to maintain your BCABA or your BCBA license. That being said, on February 6th, we have an amazing CEU on soft skills. Soft skills are freaking important and needed to be an amazing BCBA. Then on February 6th, we have a CEU that a lot of you guys have requested and it is, let's talk about FCT, functional communication training and rethink behavior skills training. This is gonna be awesome. You could also catch that on our website. And last but not least, in the month of February, a new CEU dropping called Why Did the Chicken Cross the Road? This is an introduction into applied animal behavior. A lot of you guys ask, how can I get into other areas of ABA? This is an opportunity to do that. Sign up on our website, studynotesaba.com, and click CEUs at the top, and it will take you right there. Or you could go direct at ceu.studynotesaba.com. You won't want to miss these. They're going to be awesome. Study notes, ABA. ABA in a little X right away. It's behavior, bitches. Hey, guys. It's Liat. And Casey. And we are here with episode 85. Casey. Do something for 85 that doesn't rhyme with alive. Damn it. <laughs> that was all I had. I was going to say 85. Our guest energy today is making me feel alive. She's bringing oh. the energy. I love that. That's perfect. Our guest 85. There must be a hive somewhere in my house because we are infested by flies. I don't know what is going on. That's just some inside information behind the scenes. That's disgusting. I know. You should see how many traps I have. It happened out of nowhere. Okay. Anyways, today, well, first of all, I just want to let you guys know, we have been very busy at Study Notes ABA and Behavior Bitches. We are getting on our shit in general in terms of getting ahead in our podcast, not recording the night before. Um, We're getting better and better guests. Our guest today, I am super stoked for. This is a dream interview for me. And I know I say it, Every now and then on episodes, but I I hope you see a consistent theme that I love crime, drugs, anything that is um, naughty or abnormal, kind of, I don't know, along the lines. Our guest is rolling her eyes at me already, but this this is going well, I think. I think we're really pairing well. So we have a lot going on behind the scenes at Study Notes, and we're really excited for everything coming up, so keep an eye on us. But Casey, what are you up to? Well, I'm over here ready to read a great review that I actually got through Instagram. Um, and it is from Gemma Jersok. It says, hey, I'm currently doing my applied behavior analysis master's degree in England, and I eventually want to become a BCBA. I have just started listening to your podcast, and they have helped me understand stuff so much more as it is really relatable, and you guys are making things make so much sense as I have been struggling recently, especially with key terms. I'm only on episode four, but I love it. You guys are great. XO. Thank you, Gemma. You are so sweet. Coming in from England. That is so exciting that we have listeners in the UK. That makes me happy. 
Woo, me too. All right, so on to our guest today. I am really excited. Our guest background is super cool. She has great energy, let me tell you, from the first second that we spoke. There was just an amazing energy going on. And I actually, this is one of those people when you reach out to them, you're like really excited that they wrote back because you'll see why. Um, But without further ado, Casey, can you tell us about our podcast guest today? Yes, I'm so excited. I can't wait. So we have on Dr. Nancy Zars. She's a pretty big deal. I'll tell you that. She's a forensic psychologist and a full professor in the forensic department at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. She leads violence and risk assessments, which we'll be talking about today, psychology of terrorism, psychology of law enforcement, hostage negotiation. You know we love a good negotiation, evaluation and treatment of the adult offender, and more. Dr. Zars developed a course on Israel focusing on terrorism, trauma, and resilience, culminating, you know I have to mess up a word, culminating in a 10-day study abroad trip, which she has led for 10 years. She also has worked as a forensic psychologist at several high-profile prisons. Previous positions include chief, chief psychologist at two federal prisons and the director of inmate administration at the United States Disciplinary Barracks at Fort Leavenworth, the maximum, maximum security military prison. She's done consults with law enforcement agencies, FBI, U.S. Army military police. She's published multiple articles on hostage negotiation, Israel, work stress, police values. It goes on and on and on. And if I read her whole bio, we'd be here for five ever. So I'm going to let her come on the show and talk about herself a little bit. So welcome to the show, Dr. Nancy. Well, thank you very much. I am I am deeply flattered and, and I'm very excited to be here. So I wanted to start real quick. Um, I saw that you did an interview. It's on YouTube with Zabine. Yes. She was a guest of ours, actually. Well, when you said that in our pre-meeting, I went back and, and listened to that. It was pretty cool. Yeah, one of my favorites. She, uh, she's a boss, absolutely. So I just see these connections. I was just looking up some videos of you earlier. I like to do some pre-work, and I was like, oh, my gosh, look at that connection. She invited me on behalf of Schroner Institute. I'm, I'm faculty with the Schroner Institute, and she invited me to speak at their end conference, I want to say 2019, I think it was. Yeah, it was 2019. Yep. And actually, Scott, who you also know very, very well, spoke at that conference as well. So cool how this all works, and we just love how people just put us in touch with the next cool person out there who's doing awesome stuff who I am just honored to have like that you would even come on so thank you so much for being here today and I'm honored to be asked thank you absolutely all right Liat I know is burning over there with questions trust me so let's get going Liat all right so Nancy you know I'm stoked for this I think I've already given Nancy like four heart attacks this morning um I think her and Casey both seem like people who plan their stuff and Today, so far, she's like, what? you That's not the topic we're talking about. And I'm like, well, we spoke about a few. But I am really excited for the topic today. And I think it's relevant. Casey, Casey did you notice she kind of said that like a bit of an insult? Yeah, and I actually I take pride. Doing? I take pride no, in the fact. How is that a negative thing? Yeah. <laughs> no, so, well, I'm just like. Behind the scenes, though, Nancy, the way we work together is just like this every single time. Uh, it's her last minute. I'm always like 
been prepping for probably four hours before we get on and she just comes in and not really but she comes in and she just like is able to like go on the fly and like I could never do that so that's how we work so well together she'd be like did you do this I'm like yes of course I have already done all of that (laughs) I love it listen I'm a little offensive sometimes so (laughs) Nancy can do you want me to call you Dr. Nancy or like doctor or Dr. Zars? What makes you feel happiest? What makes you happy? Okay. My professional title is Dr. Zars, but whatever you want to do. But I just kind of feel like we became a little bit of friends the other day. That's the thing. Unless I'm like imagining it. I also think that I'm friends with everyone and I don't know if they think the same. But yeah, um, I started to feel a real compliment there. Like, cool, cool. I was friends. And then you're like, I'm friends with everyone. So like, that meant absolutely nothing. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, I'm done talking. Um, here we... Um, because we're friends, you already could correct every term that I said wrong. She's already like told me like, yeah, it's not a guard. It's a correctional officer. And I'm like, listen, no shame in the game. Correct me throughout the podcast. So here we go. Nancy, what is it that you do? If you sat next to someone on an airplane, well, I don't know if you're that open. If you sat next to someone on an airplane, there's not COVID anymore. So you're not scared to talk to the person next to you. And they say, oh, so what do you do? And if you didn't lie and try hide it, what would you actually say? <laughs> that is a bit of a loaded question because I've come to the point in my career where I don't always say what I do because of the reaction I get. But in general, if you ask me what I do, I'm a forensic psychologist and I'm a full professor. And what I do depends upon which of those hats I'm wearing and then what I'm doing within that realm. So let's take, I'm the founder and president of Czar Psychological Services. So that's a consulting practice. We can talk about that. I'm also a full professor at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. I'm, it's, I'm in, on the Chicago campus, the forensic department, and it is a graduate program in, obviously, forensic psychology. So let's start with that. So at the Chicago School, I am course lead of the courses that that you've already mentioned at great length. So obviously the one we're talking about today, violence risk assessment is one of them. Hostage negotiation, psychology of terrorism, you know, a lot of, of what a lot of people think are pretty exciting stuff. So I create those, I create the content for those courses. I, I develop that content. I also teach. So I teach all those courses that we just rattled off in, in as a full professor, which is, which is an academic title that, that doesn't, that's not the same as full time. So, you know, there's a, there's a number of academic positions. You typically start as instructor and then an assistant professor an associate professor and a full professor. So I'm, I'm a full professor. So I also advise students quite a few. And so that dictates a lot, you know, that takes up a lot of my time. I get to sit on committees because at the university level, we love committee work. And wait, did I roll my eyes out loud at that? I think I did. And I also sit at my university on the threat assessment team. So a lot of what we're going to talk about today, I put into place at my university. Okay. In my consulting practice, what I do depends on my client. So I do psychological evaluations. I consult. I provide training. I do presentations on a number of topics and, and to a number of a variety of audiences. It could be schools or school districts. It could be law firms. It could be hospitals. 
It could be private companies. It could be national companies. It could be global clients. I do psychological evaluations for the courts. I testify. So there's, there's all of that, which is kind of the obvious stuff of what I do. But then I also do a great deal of time networking and collaborating and consulting with friends and with colleagues because I will say that interdisciplinary collaboration and relationships really lie at the heart of a lot of what I do and how I do it. So that was a long-winded answer, wasn't it? I have a question for me, for listeners. Can you just give us a quick, um, what is forensic psychology? Maybe just a little oh. like blurb. Beautiful. Forensic psychology is anywhere where psychology and the law intersect. So at that intersection is where you find us. It could be civil, it could be criminal. So if it's criminal, we might work in corrections. We might work with probation and parole. We might do psychological evaluations for the courts. We might be involved in, in any of those risk assessment, profiling, any of that sort of thing, hostage negotiation. In the civil realm, we might be involved in commitments, in custody evaluations, in those sorts of things. So anywhere really where law and psychology come together. So you you spend a lot of time in prisons as well. Is that right? I worked in prisons. So let's be clear. I didn't, I wasn't an inmate. So yes, I worked for over a decade for the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And I worked at three different federal prisons, so did federal law enforcement. And then I also worked for several years at the United States Disciplinary Barracks, the maximum security military prison, housing all branches of the armed services. We call it the DBE. Folks call it Leavenworth. Okay. And do you ever do stuff like not guilty by reason of insanity, like in like um, trials? Not trials anymore. I worked for a year on a, on a not guilty by reason of insanity. And I also worked for a year on an unfit to stand trial unit. Oh, wow. That's like big responsibility. It, it was. And it, it <laughs> was great for some rather interesting stories over the years. I am sure. Maybe after COVID, we could get together, have a glass of wine, and I could listen to all your stories. That is literally, Let's that's, like, that's like a dreamy night for me. Like we could talk about that, then we could watch some murder shows. You know, this would be, this would be just great. You're and like, it's I love movies, and if you were to see my movie collection, friends of mine have come in and been like, "How do you make sense of this?" And then they're like, "Oh, what you do?" So I have movies that I watch because they're fun and I enjoy them, and then I have movies that I watch on the more professional reality because I'm learning. You know, <clears throat> not that all movies are completely accurate. But I think you really can advance your knowledge base, depending upon the quality of the movie. I mean, I, I get a lot of ideas. I get a lot of ideas for podcasts from like movies or shows, even though it might not be that accurate. But like, that's how we even got down the hostage negotiation path. I like watched one episode of one show and I'm like, all right, we're doing research on this or. Um, well, and I use clips in my presentations. I do a tremendous amount of training all around the country, a little bit the world. And I think that some of the professional type of clips, you know, from psychology tends to be a little bit, how shall I say, dry. And yet I find that movie clips really captivate people's attention. 
So I can talk about the concept, and people are kind of like, yeah, well, okay. And then I show a clip, and they're like, oh, wow, that, yeah, okay. And they might remember the clip, or in fact, stories, when I do tell clinical stories. I find that people remember movie clips and stories better than they necessarily remember the actual academic content, which is a little bit humbling. No, it's true. It, I mean, I mean, that's what we do with even our study prep. Like if you tell like a story with it or something dramatic or, you know, something novel that's like, oh my God, I will never forget that story of that inmate you spoke about or that client you had. It, it really does. Now you've paired it and it's amazing because people love being able to connect it to something as opposed to just a term, like you're bringing it to life. Correct. I wouldn't have thought to use the word pairing. That's an ABA term. But yes, I mean, I think that that really is what resonates with people because it's it's vivid and it is more relatable than, you know, cycle battle. Let's just be honest. Yep, we got to get it in some layman terms to make people understand um, and make sense of it so that they can utilize it in application. Well, I'll give it to you in both. I'm a big believer in the language of the field. So if you take me as a student, Mm -hmm. I actually require you to learn the language of the field. And I don't allow euphemisms or, you know, watered down layperson's type. Or calling someone a guard when they're a correctional officer. Connect them under. You know, I'm a huge believer in words matter. And I think guard over the year has, has been a term that does not exactly inspire respect. And I think the vast majority of the correctional officers that I have worked with in the Federal Bureau of Prisons or at the DB were, were sincere, hardworking, committed people that were passionate about what they did. And they took it seriously. And the vast majority of people don't abuse their power. So let's give them that respect of the title. I'm just an ignorant still learning, but I need you <laughs> along the way to, to teach me. Well, that's one for you. Another view is I'm obnoxious. So really, take whichever (laughs) one you want. (laughs) I love it. All right. So today we're going to be talking about violence violence assessments. And first of all, I want to know, first of all, what is a violence assessment? And I guess when we spoke about it the first time, I was thinking in the context of, um, you know, the corrective system. Can I say that word? I don't know what that meant. You meant correctional? Yeah, correctional (laughs) system. The correctional system, yes. Oh my gosh, we need to spend some time together and we could like make common language so I could learn. Okay, so in the correctional system, I thought you were talking about violence assessment there, but I, I guess you're what you seemed like what you were saying is it also could be used across, like generalized across multiple areas, whether it's a school. So it's interesting that you talk, that you connect violence risk assessment to the correctional environment. I don't necessarily by any means at all. So when we think of violence risk assessment, first of all, it applies equally to school violence, to workplace violence, to mass casualty violence, and to terrorism. So it it really has no boundaries by any given organization or agency. Okay, so that's first and foremost. When we talk about violence risk and assessment, and if I were queen for the day, I would frame this in four areas, education, identification, assessment, and management of risk. And all four of those areas are equally important. And ironically, as a 
as a forensic psychologist, I might be brought in to bear on any of those four or any combination thereof. So when I when I think of doing presentations and trainings, I'm advancing education. That's the whole point. And I want people to get that violence risk assessment isn't just something that someone over there does. We all have a role in violence risk assessment. We'll get to that in a little bit. But it, so, and when I provide training on this, and keep in mind, you know, I teach this at the graduate level, but I also give presentations, I give keynotes on this topic. What, what we're looking at there are risk factors for violence and types of violence and the pathway to intended violence and threat assessment teams. And so even if you say to me, I want you to come in and talk to us about pathway to intended violence, I will say, okay, sure, that's great. And then I will sneak this other stuff in too. Because I want you to have a comprehensive picture of what's involved and what we all can do to minimize the risk of violence. It's not just them. It's not just the cops. It's not just psychologists. It's not just the, the teachers or the principals at the schools or the, the bosses at, at our places of employment. It's all of us. We all play a role in all four, well, maybe not all four of those elements, but you know, yeah, education, identification, assessment, and management of risk. So when you're looking at a risk assessment, and you could be like, Leah, you're in the totally wrong realm. C- can you start as early? Let's say you're actually like looking at one individual, right? You could start early. Could this even be assessing, like, let's say, like, a child's behavior from a young age, what you're looking at in terms of risk or violence assessment? Or is that not in this realm also? If I understand the question, I think that's slightly different. Now, can I look at one individual? Absolutely. Absolutely. But typically when I am brought in is when some concern has been identified about that individual. Now, sometimes what happens is I provide a training piece. You know, let's say I come in and I do a four-hour presentation, and all of a sudden somebody realizes, ding, 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 that's Billy Bob. She just described Billy Bob. And then all of a sudden we mobilize around concerns about Billy Bob or Sally Sue, whoever it is. So, yes, I focus on one individual, but what you're talking about, Leon, I think is slightly different that we're just casting a net over any child at any age. Well, well, I meant because like when you're talking about violence risk assessment, I guess, can you like give me an example of something that you might be called in for that you would do a violence risk assessment is I guess what I'm. Well, can we go at this another way? Sure. Can we start a little bit more foundationally and, and talk about that stuff. And then I think that will help under that will help give you almost a preview of who I tend to be brought in on. So can we do it that way? I would Nancy, love it. Your way is the way we are going today. All right. It's Nancy's way. Wait, wait I want to record that. My <laughs> way is the way. I want to record that. And I want to play that for everybody in my life, professionally and personally. <laughs> I love it. Well, you can take that clip if you would like. <laughs> All right. So probably a good place to start would be either risk factors for violence or the types of violence. Okay. What? Okay. Perfect. Thank you so much. This helps me. Also, my brain's all over, so you're helping me organize, and I love it. What are 
<laughs> what are risk factors for violence? Okay, so I'm gonna come at that two different ways. First, the forensic literature has identified six key risk factors. So let's start with those risk factors. The first is past violence. Now, if you hear me speak or if you hear me teach, you're going to hear me say over and over and over again that the single greatest indicator of future behavior is past. It is so important that I'm actually going to repeat it. The single greatest indicator of future behavior is past. And this That's is literally talking dirty to us. That's literally our language we speak. That is like dirty talk to us. So I love that. I was going to say, and to all you women out there listening or any man, anyone, if you're partner cheats on you that's the greatest indicator that they're going to cheat on you again <laughs> so what i what in fact what i was getting ready to say was this is not just relevant to violence mm -hmm. the reason that we at a graduate school ask for your undergraduate transcripts is because the single greatest indicator of future behavior is past the reason that an employer asks for references is because the single greatest indicator of future behavior is past. And the reason if we start dating somebody that we ask around is because the single greatest indicator of future behavior is past. Now, if we bring it back to violence, obviously everybody has their first instance of violence. So just because you hear that this individual has no violence in their past, doesn't mean that they might not be at current risk of violence. But if they do have violence in their past, Single greatest indicator of future behavior is past. So I'm going to look at frequency, recency, and severity. How often are they violent? How severe is that violence? And when was the last time that they were violent? They were violent. Okay? So we're going to look at that. Then we get to male gender. Men are more violent than women at a ratio of 10 to 1. It's not even close. And that is across time, race, culture, socioeconomic status, it doesn't matter what other demographical variable you put in the mix, men are more violent than women, and their violence is more likely to result in serious physical injury, and they're more likely to engage in violence against strangers. Okay, now, here's a caveat. Female violence is on the rise, and, but there's a couple of things to know about female violence. Female violence tends to be relational in nature, and female violence does not tend to result in a serious of uh, physical harm, okay? Now, I will tell you as a female, as a woman, in, in, certainly professionally, I have spent most of my life fighting against gender stereotypes. It's funny, when people hear what I do and they focus on the corrections, they think, oh, that's the most important thing to know about me, that I worked in prisons. No, actually, if I were to reveal something to you, the most important thing to know about me is that I have five brothers. Oh. Put everything that I do in context with those five brothers. So I have spent my life fighting against sexism and chauvinism right in my own home before I ever entered the workforce, many, unfortunately, several decades ago. So, but on this, like, finally, I give. Females really are most, you know, gender stereotypically, doesn't mean all females and no men. But women do tend to be a little bit more about relationships than men. And I find it the height of irony that it even plays out in our violence. So women tend to be violent against their partners, against their parents, against their children, against their friends, and just their coworkers. I find it just the height of irony. But female violence does not tend to result in as serious a physical injury most of the time. 
Okay, so so far we have past violence, we have male gender, also young age. And what we know about uh, age of violence is that the highest risk of violence is 15 to 23 or 24. And that's not just for anti-social violence, that's also pro-social violence. Think about our military. You know, people my age are sitting behind a desk. It's the young folks, it's the young soldiers that are on the front lines. Think about police departments. Again, people my age, we're riding the desk. It's the young folks who are on the SWAT teams. So we just know, and there's a lot of things that go into that, but the younger the age of first violence or the younger the age of first criminal offense, the greater the risk of future violence. We also then have psychopathy. And literally, I could spend an entire day, I could spend two or three days talking about psychopathy, but psychopathy is a significant risk factor for violence. You've got the glib superficial charm, the pathological lying, criminal versatility. You also have a callous lack of empathy combined with little to no remorse. So that, that, that's just, that's just a several of the features, but that's just a recipe. Now, don't equate psychopathy with violence because you don't have to be, you, if you're a psychopath, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be violent. That's a stereotype in our society that has resulted in, in blindness that has led to a tremendous amount of, of harm in our society. But if you do have a, like if I, I led hostage negotiation teams for over a decade, and if I'm on scene and I'm starting to pick up indicators that lead me to suspect that the hostage taker is a psychopath, we have just elevated considerably the risk of violence on that scene. So that's huge. Then we have substance abuse. And as soon as I say substance abuse, probably most people thought, oh, drugs, yeah, okay. But I want you to put alcohol back in here. It is alcohol and drugs. And I think it, you know, alcohol is a huge risk factor for violence. And it's one that we minimize. I think because most of us drink. So of course, you know, we're gonna minimize whatever it is that we do as we point the fingers at what they're doing, mm -hmm. put alcohol back on the table. I actually refer to alcohol as liquid courage. Yeah. So it's not at all uncommon that people are drinking before they go engage in their criminal activity and violence. And then the sixth variable is serious mental illness. And you notice I said serious. It is not simply mental illness. In fact, 90% of the mentally ill are not violent. And of the 10% who are, I want you more than thinking about a diagnosis, I want you to focus on symptomatology command hallucinations, delusions, paranoia, active symptomatology right now of a serious, serious nature increases risk. But I am gonna repeat again that only 10% of the mentally ill are violent, about 90% are not. So contrary to what you hear in the news, contrary to what you hear from politicians, contrary to what you hear in TV and in movies, Violence does not equal mental illness, and mental illness does not equal violence. I just had to put in that plug. I am a psychologist. There's a correlation, but not a causation. That's what I was thinking in my head. I was, <laughs> but I was like, it's a prediction. It's not control, if anyone's well, out there listening. But it's not even just, but even with prediction, remember, 90% are not. Right. Or yeah. don't want, you know, the, the depressed, the anxious, they don't tend, if that's the only variable, to be violent. I want you to think about command hallucinations, paranoia, delusions. 
Those are the folks that tend to be the most vital. Okay, so those are the six key. We can go at this another way. but I, I have one question about that as you were asking, um, which, I mean, that's exactly what we study all the time that, you know, like you see someone's past behavior. If it was reinforced, they'll do it again, whatever it is. And my dad always says a leopard never changes their spots. Um, I but never, I avoid absolutes, but for the most part, I agree with your dad. He's absolute in everything he talks about. Let me tell you that. Okay. <laughs> but um, what I, I'm wondering, is this also, so you say like, if, if you've committed violence in the past, it's, it's more likely that you'll do it again. Is it also if you are raised around violence? Just ding, 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 ding. You guys warm my heart. Okay, so those are the six key risk factors. One of my favorite models of risk assessment is Dr. Reed Malloy developed the biopsychosocial model. He actually has 18 items. 18, he has identified 18 risk factors in that. And so take those first six, but then also add anger which we often underestimate, yeah. add family of origin violence, add adolescent peer group violence. Although I personally would, if, if I were writing this model, I would chop off adolescent. I think peer group. I don't think we ever outgrow the influence of our peers yeah. to either our benefit or our detriment. So I think we really need to spend some time looking at who we hang out with and what their influence is on us. But anyway, so adolescent peer group violence, think low SES, so, so economic instability, low socioeconomic status, that's a risk factor for violence. Think weapons, absolutely, think about weapons and your access to, your experience with, your skill with, your interest in, or your approach behavior with, weapons are huge, and obviously weapons also increase the lethality of violence. You know, back in my day, if one of my brothers got angry, not that my brothers ever would, of course, and my mother would be appalled at the thought. So back in my day, if somebody else got angry, they punched mm -hmm. somebody. Yeah. That's very different than nowadays if you pull out a gun or a knife. So what we know about weapons, not only do they increase the risk of violence, but they also increase the lethality of that violence. Think CNS trauma. Think head injuries. That also increases. So I didn't list all 18, but those are some of the, the additional risk factors that I want you to be thinking of as you approach violence risk assessment. Perfect. And one thing I want to say just for anyone listening, if you are studying for the, the BCBA exam um, and just relating it to our own science, uh, these are also a lot of MOs, if you think about it, right? That background information that we keep in mind for different things. Like let's say someone is low socioeconomic status, that would be a motivating operation to engage, right? It would evoke behaviors of engaging in, let's say illegal or violent behavior to gain access to whatever reinforcer they're trying to get. Basically, Nancy, what I just said is I copied what you said, but I said it behaviorally. Okay. Cool. Cool. <laughs> All right. Bring it. I okay, now do you want to talk types of yes. violence? Yes. I am taking very detailed notes over here. I feel like I'm in a class and I just love this so much. I love to learn. So I'm like, yeah, what? Well, tell me what's next. It's funny. Not that, of course, I don't love everything I teach. Right. Of course I do. But I especially love teaching violence risk assessment. I just, and I think it has such, it, it has such massive ramifications for our lives and such wide generalizability. Okay, so the two types of violence are affective violence and predatory violence. 
Let's start with affective. F with affective violence, you have intense autonomic arousal. Now, you don't need to know what that is or even what that means. You're going to see it. You're, this is the person who's, who's puffed up, whose who's, uh, pupils are dilated, whose skin is flushed, who's sweating, who's heavy breathing. So you don't even have to know what you're looking at. But when you see that, what that is, is the body's evolutionary ad adaptation to a threat. And that's what we've got with affective violence. It's emotional. It's affective. It's reactive. It's in response to a direct threat, internal or external. And so internally, it could be that I'm phobic. And thus, I might be misperceiving that threat, but I'm still reacting as if it's real, because in my head it is. Or it could be external threat. You're coming at me with a clenched fist or a gut. And what happens, like even when you think about the, the evolutionary response of puffing up my chest and drawing, what I'm doing there is I'm both trying to make myself look bigger so that you don't even come at me, and I'm also drawing more air into my lungs to prepare me to fight or flee. So that is the body's evolutionary response to threats. And the goal of affective violence is to reduce the threat and return the body to its homeostasis. It's not healthy for us to stay in a constant state of arousal, which is what happens with PTSD. And it's what happens with law enforcement who live under threat. And so they have a higher level of arousal on an ongoing basis. It's not healthy for the body it tends to lead to heart attacks or other physical things. So the goal of affective violence <clears throat> is to respond to that threat, reduce that threat, and ultimately reduce the body to its original state of homeostasis. So that's affective. Okay, guys, and that probably sounds familiar to you. That's respondent behavior, right? Those things that your body does without, you, it, you know, it's not a learning history. That's just how your body responds. As like you're, a, not aware, you're not aware that you're doing right. it. You're not trying to do it. It is fizz. And if, if we go back to movies, if you watch movies, this is one of the times when I show clips. There's a great scene in the movie Departed with Matt Damon and Leonardo DiCaprio. And there's a scene in the bar where Leonardo DiCaprio is insulted. And so he immediately hauls off and hits the guy next to him with one of those beer steins. And then they engage in a tussle and then somebody else gets in and now Leonardo DiCaprio is ready to take that guy on and he's heavy breathing and he's flushed and he's just it. He's, it, it is immediate and it is reactive. Okay. That's affective violence. Predatory violence is radically different. It is planned and purposeful. The body is not psychologically fired up. It is planned and purposeful. The body is not psychologically fired up. The person is cool, calm, and collected. There is no imminent threat, but there are there is a goal. So there is no imminent threat, but there are goals. So the goals could be money. It could be turf. It could be territory. It could be revenge. It could be lust, sex. It could be power and control. Okay? No eminent threat, but there are goals. So essentially, with affective violence, I want you to think emotional, defensive, in response to a threat. So you can think about a barroom brawl. You can think about road rage. What about with, battered wife syndrome? That could be either. It could. You're right. I was just thinking that as I said it. Yeah. Yeah. Power control. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. And I don't believe that we are 100% victims to our emotions. So, you know, when, 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 not that they're all guys, they, they are gals too, but when the perpetrator says, oh, well, you know, you just made me so angry, you are ultimately 100% responsible for what you do and what you say, period, period. You are ultimately responsible for what you do and what you say. So with predatory violence, again, planned, purposeful, no threat, but they have goals. So think, I, I'm from Chicago, so think gang violence, think I worked most of my career in the, in the Bureau of Prisons on the East Coast. Think mafia. Think 9-11. Yep. Planned and purposeful predatory violence. The vast majority of what we're doing when it comes to violence risk assessment is predatory violence. School violence. Work. Now, by school violence, I don't mean a fight in the lunchroom. Right. A fight in the lunchroom is affective violence. A fight on the playground it could be either, but it could be affective violence. But think about the outcome of both of those two. They don't tend to be devastating. Right. But when, when an individual brings a gun into a school, that kind of school violence, that is planned and predatory. And people do not, in those instances, just snap. It drives me batty. People don't snap. That violence is predatory. It is planned and purposeful. And there are identifiable stages that that person follows through on their way, his or her way, from the grievance to the violence. Guys, behavioral translation again, here I come in. Um, there is always an antecedent or precursors before something happens. Nothing happens in a vacuum or randomly. We know that. That is why one of our main dimensions of ABA is determinism. Nothing happens just willy-nilly. There is something before always, even if you don't see it. All right, I'm back. It's all you, Nancy. So that could be a nice segue into, if you were going to ask me, about the pathway to intended violence. How did yeah. you know that, that we were going to ask you that next? How did you know, Nance? Because <laughs> we read minds. That's what I we know. do. So... <laughs> Pathway to Intended Violence. It was it, it, it's a it's a model developed by Calhoun and Weston in the book Contemporary Threat Management. I'm an academic. I like to give my references. So, and it's a pretty easy read. So, like if you're interested in this, Dr. Reed Malloy wrote a book on violence risk assessment. It's a little bit dated, but it's seminal. I think it's absolutely worth it. And again, it's called Violence and Risk Assessment. I think written in 2000. It's a really easy read, but absolutely chock full of valuable information. Same with this book, Calhoun and Weston, Contemporary Threat Management, a little bit dated as well, but seminal. And what they talk about there is that this kind of intended violence, people do not just snap, they follow a pathway. Now, what is absolutely pivotal is that we need to focus on behavior and data, not demographic information, and there is no profile. There is no profile of a school shooter, of a workplace violence shooter, of an active shooter, of a, no, 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 no. Do not even go there. Don't get into the weeds of a profile. Don't go searching for demographics. Focus on behavior because I don't care what the demographics are. If I focus on behavior and I follow the data, I'm going to lead to identification of risk of violence. And hopefully the goal there is that we can then intervene and either control or eliminate or manage the violence. Okay. 
This is sounding so much like what we do. Like um, we focus on behaviors, applied behavior analysis. We focus on the behavior. The behavior will tell you everything. The data will tell you everything. Without data, it's just another person's opinion. Yes. We know what they say about opinions. So, (laughs) and in, in forensic psychology, the value of a forensic psychological evaluation is 100% dependent on the collateral information. In fact, one of the things that differentiates a forensic psychologist from a clinical psychologist, now keep in mind, I am a doctor of clinical psychology. That is my degree. Of course, back in that day, the field of forensic psychology was pretty new and developing and emerging. So there weren't degrees in forensic psychology. But but a clinical psychologist, if you come to me for therapy and I'm a clinical psychologist, I'm going to focus on you. And the session is pretty much going to be dependent on you, what you tell me and what I figure out based on you. In forensic psychology, I am not going to do a psychological evaluation. I am not going to go into court without a significant amount of collateral information. It's just not going to happen. I am going to collect information, you know, and if you think TPI, third-party information, personal and professional, written and verbal you know, that's what we're going to go through. We're going to focus on all of those kinds of things. Okay. So back to behavior. Go ahead. Hit me. We do that too. That's exactly what we do. And, you know, obviously we would rather have a direct assessment observing something ourselves, but, you know, oftentimes to get started, you'll need that indirect assessment speaking to, you know, like stakeholders, family members, Teachers. If you think a parent, you're not going to tell me that my child is autistic just because you think so. You're going to, even if, if you do a behavioral observation, you're going to write down specific behavior that you're seeing. You're going to put that in context against the typical behavior versus atypical behavior. You're probably going to do that over two or three times before you ever come to me as a parent and say, we think your child is on the spectrum. Because if you come to me with that, I'm going to be so defensive as any parent would be. And the only way to break through that defensiveness is with calm, it's with compassion, it's with developing some kind of rapport with me and then providing me data. And if I'm still resistant, you might have me come into the school and observe my child where my child cannot see me so that I see the behavior and I think, oh, look at Golly. That's that's a concern. It's a great point. Yes, absolutely, that's what we're doing. And that's what you're doing, absolutely. Okay, you want to hear the pathway? Uh-huh. I'm waiting. I have my pen You're ready. You're the best guest ever. I just want to like throw that in there. It's like usually it's like, okay, what am I gonna ask them next? Like, I don't even need to. Like, I it just I could just ask you questions along the way. It's so nice. You're a natural podcast leader. Yep. Keep well, going. You're doing great. I am again, I am deeply flattered. So thank you. Okay. So the pathway to intended violence, we're gonna focus on six stages: grievance, ideation research and planning, preparation, breach, and attack. So let's back those up. Now keep in mind, I am giving you a nutshell. You know, typically, if if you were to ask me, hey, Dr. Sars, we want you to come in and speak to our school or our business, what is your preferred time frame? I would tell you four hours. Mm -hmm. Maybe I can do it in two. I can definitely do it in eight. So I'm giving you a nutshell, but a grievance. A sense of injustice, real or perceived, that must be avenged. And I can go into a lot more detail, but those are the three elements that you really want to focus on. A sense of injustice, real or perceived, that must be avenged. So a sense of injustice, I feel wronged in some way. Now, how often does that happen? 
you know, normally I drive into Chicago, I might feel wronged by the commute. I might feel wronged by some bozo who cut me off. I might feel wronged by some turd that was, was rude on the streets of Chicago. Okay, those are all grievances, real or perceived. <laughs> you would be amazed at how many clients hire me and then they spend a lot of time arguing against the fact that that's not really what happened or what the company did was legit. And I say, with all due respect, I don't care. Yeah, That's not why I'm here. Real or perceived, if it is in that person's mind, we are now going to respond to that perception because that's the perception that's going to drive the risk of violence. That's real to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I just had a thought, and it just flew out of my mind. <laughs> oh. So I had an inmate say to me once in the BOP, uh, Bureau of Prisons, I had an inmate say to me once, every head is a world doc. Sit with that. Every head is a world doc. You know, as a psychologist, hopefully I know my head and, and hopefully I have some level of insight into my own self. My challenge as a psychologist, forensic psychologist, doing a risk assessment is to get out of my head and into the head of the individual that I am now evaluating. Every head is a world doc. And the older I get, the more profound I think that statement is. That's our job. Get into somebody else's head and see the world from that perspective. And in this instance, from that head, from that perspective, how much risk is there of violence? Yeah. Is he just squawking? Is he a howler? Or is he a hunter? Now, we're not going to segue into that. So, okay. All right. So, that's a grievance. Mm -hmm. Sense of injustice. My head is, like, trying to think of every single way to translate that. I'm like, he's talking about a document and word. Are we talking about a dock, like a boat dock? That individual said to me, every head is a world dock, as in Dr. Zarks. Oh! Oh! Dock is short for Dr. Zars. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Oh, wait. Oh. Every head is a world, comma, dock. Okay, I, I'm literally thinking of a comma doc. Period. Got it. <laughs> so essentially, Dr. Sars, every head is a world. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people call me doc. That in the in the Bureau of Prisons and federal and in, in law enforcement, actually in many of my clinical roles, that's people call me doc. It's a lot shorter and it's easier to pronounce. People have a surprisingly difficult time pronouncing my name. Okay, so that's a grievance. Then we move to ideation. Ideation is a fixation on the injustice and, and I want you to capitalize, italicize, underline, and the decision that violence is the only means by which to avenge. Okay, again, both of these elements are critical. So the fixation on the violence, pretty much anytime you're talking, I'm talking about that injustice. I'm talking about what is now compelling and propelling my energy, then the decision that violence is the only means. You know, there's a lot of decisions that we can make about an injustice. I can file a union grievance. I can file a lawsuit. And it's funny because when, when clients hire me and I come in and I hear that that's what they're doing, I'm like, oh, terrific. And people are like, well, what do you mean terrific? That's legit. It's mm -hmm. expensive. It's inconvenient. It's stressful. But all of that is better than violence. I would much rather have somebody filing a lawsuit because that is a legitimate means by which to avenge their injustice. Violence is an illegitimate means, period. 
I don't care what the justification is. I don't care what the excuse is. Violence is an illegitimate response to an injustice. Mm -hmm. Period. Okay. Then we've got research and planning. This is the third stage. So we've got grievance. Now we've moved on to ideation. Now we're at research and planning. This is movement towards the violence by virtue of gathering information. So it could be surveillance. It could be suspicious inquiries. It could be research on the targets. How, if I'm the target of violence, how accessible am I? When am I at my most vulnerable? Am I a creature of habit? Do I do the same thing all the time? Do I park in the same place? Do I come in the same door? Am I exactly on time? All of those things, which you know might make me organized or efficient or whatever, also make me vulnerable. It could also be the selection of a date. So for ABAers, if you think about school violence and you think about Columbine, kind of the gold standard, unfortunately, we use that word loosely, but the gold standard of school violence, both the date and the target count, that is all part of research and planning. Mm -hmm. Movement towards the violence by gathering information. Okay? You getting ready to jump in? Nope. Getting ready to write more. Keep going. Then we move to the fourth stage, preparation. So we started with a grievance. We moved on to ideation. We've now gone through research and planning. The fourth step, preparation, is the gathering of items to conduct that violence. So it might be weapons. It might be ammunition. It might be target Duct practice. tape. Duct tape. Boom. So if you think, again, Columbine, when those individuals, when those criminals, when those subjects were out in the woods at the Rampart Rage video, and they were not only target practicing, but they were practicing on moving targets, that is preparation. So if you think Oklahoma City bombing, and you think about the inordinate preparation and planning that went into that action, and researching how to build those bombs, and then buying the material and going to multiple states so that no one person was aware of the magnitude of what he was buying and building. Think about the surveillance that he conducted. He reconnoitered the the Oklahoma City about where he parked, where he wanted to park his vehicle to conduct maximum damage, including on the daycare center where he parked his getaway car. All of that was preparation. Then we move to breach. Breach is what we call the penultimate step. It is the movement towards the target. So if research and planning, that was the movement towards the violence. Breach is the physical movement towards the target. There, now think of the movie, if you love movies as much as I do. Think about a time to kill, and we can walk through the entire pathway to intended violence in there. But when Samuel L. Jackson bursts out of the closet with gun drawn, coming after the two the two criminals who brutally raped and attempted to murder his daughter, bursting out of that closet, that is breach. Now, a couple of things to say about breach. And this is, again, whether we're talking school violence or whether we're talking workplace violence or whether we're talking terrorism, domestic or international. Breach has a, offers a very limited opportunity in which to intervene. And because of that, by the time we hit breach, we are at a, at a high potential for violence. So think school violence. If we can identify these subjects at stages one or two, which is also legal, 
So we're going to have a harder time there. But by the time we hit research and planning, this is the most noticeable of steps because this involves some kind of activity that other people can see. If we can catch them there or we can catch them at preparation when they're buying the gun, when they're selecting the date, when they're probably bragging about it in the schoolyard, in the cafeteria, if we can catch them on stages one through four, odds are good we can intervene and prevent that violence. If we're in stage five and the shooter is in the hallway, odds are good that at that point we're attempting to minimize casualties, but we are no longer preventing violence. And then the sixth stage is attack. So that is where the subject engages in the actual attack. Now, it might not be successful. The shooter might miss. The attack might be aborted. There might have been poor planning. We've seen suicide bombers in Israel who are trying to click the the bomb, and it doesn't detonate. And the Columbine, they also planted bombs around, so there, there was logistical problems there. It could be a lack of intestinal fortitude. I lose my nerve, and so I don't engage in the violence. So any of that might happen. So that's the six stages of violence. Grievance, ideation, research and planning, preparation, breach, and attack. Gotcha. And at attack, there's your, I mean, it's already happened, right? It's like- Oh, it's in the process of happening. Yeah. So Secret Service, they might jump in front of the bullet. Okay, so it might not be successful, but, or the person might miss. You know, there was an instance down at a school board in Florida where an individual came in, a subject came into a school board meeting and cleared out the women, kept the men, the, there attempted to be in a negotiation, which the guy was not a skilled negotiator. It, it did not. It was not successful. And the perpetrator pulls out a gun uh, about eight feet away and starts shooting. And the guy ducked. And he pops his head up again. The guy shoots again. He ducks down again. So the guy behind the, the, the school board president assumes, concludes falsely that the individual is shooting blanks and you can actually hear the the police trying to break in the door and the school board president yells out, don't worry, he's shooting blanks. Luckily, the police disregarded that input and they came in, the guy wasn't shooting blanks. He was a really bad shot. He He literally could have thrown the gun at the guy and hit it. So that's still an attack. Mm -hmm. Just because he missed the target doesn't mean that that's not still an attack. There was an attempted murder. Yeah. Wow. So if there was one last thing that you wanted to wrap up a violence risk assessment, I know there was one more thing I think you're going to talk about, the threat assessment team. Yeah, so not so much ripen up a violence risk assessment. Let's no, 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 no. That's not, I mean more like the episode of what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The threat assessment team is pivotal. What we need is a central clearinghouse to collect and assess the totality of the information. If you think about Virginia Tech, they did not have a threat assessment team. They had a professor who had concerns. They had students who had concerns. The campus security had concerns. The counseling center had concerns. The local police department had concerns. But all of those concerns were siloed. There was no central clearinghouse to assess the totality of that information. We need, and I'm talking whether it's at a school, whether it's at a university, whether it's at a place of employment, we need a a threat assessment team, which is multidisciplinary by nature. We want, so for instance, the, the four key players that we want regardless, we want an administrator. 
And we want an administrator with enough juice to make decisions, but not so much juice that they're coming to a monthly meeting. So typically, we don't want the president. We don't want the superintendent. We don't want the principal. Okay? Mm-hmm. We want somebody who's going to show up every single month. Then we want a psychologist. I actually recommend a forensic psychologist. We are trained differently. Our experience in this in this space is different than a clinical psychologist or a school psychologist or a social worker. So I really strongly recommend a psychologist, but preferably a forensic psychologist. We want an attorney. If we can't have an attorney, director of HR is not a bad substitute, but we really want an attorney and we want a cop. We want those four people. And the reason is because all four of those people have different knowledge and approach problems differently. And we want that comprehensive multidisciplinary perspective to bring to bear on the identification, the assessment, and the management of risk. Then we want that threat assessment to meet, that team to meet monthly and as needed monthly every month we're in there we're talking about do you have any concerns if there are no concerns let's do some training if if we don't want to do that let's do some tabletops what if so here in chicago we had a physician at an emergency room who walked out into the parking lot and was shot it was most likely a case of domestic abuse there was a lot of information that we found out afterwards but there were significant concerns beforehand let's tabletop that so I go into hospitals and I provide training. We actually have an enormous amount of violence right now in our medical institutions. It is shocking to me, but there is a tremendous amount and an increasing amount of violence in hospitals and medical clinics and whatnot. So let's tabletop. Or I work in Chicago. Let's talk about the Henry Platt incident where a perpetrator was fired in his place of employment and shot the people that were in that room and then went into the to the factory and engaged in violence with the police officers. Let's tabletop that. What if, what are we gonna do? So let's do that. And what we're doing is we want, again, to identify and assess risk so that we can control it, eliminate it, or manage it. Beautiful. I have learned so much this episode of like, first, like. I just love how passionate you are about what you do. You can see it lights you up. I would love to have you as a professor. Um, That's what I was thinking. I was like, I was thinking like, you know, my time has been really limited lately, but I would love to like sit in on a class and take like beautiful study notes coming into this. I think it's- I have so many hashtags written down for like everything like that she's talked about. You don't know. It's just a line. Yeah, hashtag means like, like a nickname for something. You know what a hashtag is? I have nieces and nephews. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, Casey, Casey doesn't give you the credit. I knew you knew what a hashtag <laughs> was. Um, but I think anyone who is your student is just so, so lucky because to see like such a passionate teacher mm-hmm. is really- Thank you, I hope so. I hope they so. Do. And we guys, I just want you to know that when we were deciding on this episode topic, there were so many interesting things to choose between that. And I already asked Nancy from the get-go, I was like, look, I don't wanna like overwhelm you on day one, but like you have to come back and do one of these other topics such as like psychology of terrorism, survivor mentality, that one I really, really, really wanna hear. Um, Surviving and thriving in crisis, 
that was when I I'm really interested is preparing for crisis, surviving. Uh, I was listening to a, something you did earlier today. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I think you were talking about um, how to prepare for crisis. And I think that a lot of times when we're dealing with like our in our own field, like dealing with really severe problem behavior, like the clients in crisis, but how do you react right in that crisis? Like it, it's going to determine um, how it all plays out there for the safety of the client is how you can prepare and control for crises. So I think that that is another cool topic. Maybe that was the course survival mentality, the psychology of staying alive. I think so. Yeah. Great courses that's not through my university. That was through my practice mm -hmm. with great courses. Yeah. I was just YouTubing you, Nance, just like, you know, I was just making sure I had all my, my ducks in a row. <laughs> I love the preparation. <laughs> yeah, same. I also was. I literally didn't sleep for a minute last night. Of course. Yeah, that's the, uh, all right. I don't do well when I prepare for things, but Nancy, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much I mean, for coming on. thinking about the scene in the big chill where he says, that sounds like a massive rationalization. What do you mean you don't do well? What are study notes? Study notes are about preparation. See? She's giving you um, credit. No, 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 no. It, no, it is. I like, I have an idea of what I'm going to talk about always. Like I have like, just like a few bullets, but I never pull an example off of like a planned example. Like everything oh, has to like. For the podcast, you don't do the same kind of preparation. It's pretty like, I'm, I'm saying like, I know an idea of what I'll talk about, like for class, like, just so that I don't go off the rails in terms of like, talking about assessment when we're talking about measurement systems. But I mean, Casey knows, I literally, I surprise her every, she's taught the class with me multiple times over and over. And she's like, whoa, where the hell did that example come from? I'm like, I don't know, my head is always. Well, sometimes, you know, spontaneity, I think is a beautiful teaching mechanism and it, it absolutely increases your passing. So if, if you're stilted, then it, it's, you're not getting it across the same way. Another thing we need to do, whether it's a school, whether it's a company, whether it's society, is we need to create a safe environment where people can come forward with their concerns. In 81% of instances, at least one person knew something. In 59% of cases, two people knew. So we need to create the space where people can come forward and say, I'm really concerned about Nancy's ours because you know, she, I, I've never seen this before. She's out on a firing range. Mm -hmm. What's going on? Okay. Then the, the threat assessment team comes together to say, we've got this concern about this individual. Let's gather some information. Let's start with a preliminary interview. So let's figure out who's the best person to conduct that interview, whether we're in a school or an agency or a company, it doesn't matter. Who's the best to conduct that preliminary interview? Based on that, we might decide, you know what, there is a concern. We need a full-blown psychological evaluation. So we need to bring in somebody like me to do a full-blown violence risk assessment. But we need to make that safe space. We need to make a safe space where I had a, I had a, a police, a, a deputy chief call me up and say, can I run something by you? Absolutely. A couple of girls at that area high school had reported concerns about this individual. The school reported it to the police. He wanted to bounce it off of me. What do I think? What, what do I recommend that he might need to do? And, and all of those things. In addition to whatever my recommendations were about the potential subject, I said, by the way, I'd also like you to circle back to those girls. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, I'd like us to reinforce 
the girls say, nice job. We really appreciate that because we want to reinforce the behavior that we want to see again. We need to make it safe for somebody to say, I have a concern that oh my, they're not. You're literally talking, I'm telling you, this is literally like talking dirty to us. This is our, this is our language we speak. But we do that. We want this a is, space so that people right. can report concerns. We can do an, an investigation, but we, and, and if, if, if it's not valid, if, if it was, you know, casual, whatever happened, then okay, there's no consequence to the person of concern, the subject, and there's no consequence to the people who report it. But we want to make sure that we are reinforcing the behavior that we want to see again. So create a safe space where people can come forward. Perfect. Love it. You're the best, Nancy. Thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge and we will be sure to have you back and keep this relationship going. And um, I just wanna say great job preparing for today, reinforcing your behavior. <laughs> Thank you for being a ideal guest, especially in my type A world that I live in. So I appreciate you and thank you for all the hard work that you do. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you guys. I, I think this is fabulous what you're doing. Thanks so, so much. You're a fun guest, so I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you so you. much. All right, guys, that's it. That's all we have for you today. You know where to find us. You can find us on Instagram at Behavior Bitches Podcast, Facebook at Behavior Bitches Podcast. You can find us on behaviorbitches.com. And as always, love ya. Mean it. Hey, guys, it's Liat. And Casey. We just want to take a second to let you know that if you're thinking of being a millennial like us and starting your own podcast, there is a way. You can do your show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard, because guess what? We don't know shit with that. But we have Alan at Pretty Easy Podcast who helped us get started. He records our shows. He posts them. He adds awesome, awesome music and cool shit when we don't even know what he's doing. He sends us teaser episodes. He does it all. We just sit here and friggin' talk. We shoot the shit and you can record from home, your office, the park, a bathroom stall at work. It doesn't matter. He provides the complete podcast studio. All you need is a microphone and you're good. Alan caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. He has been super flexible with our schedule. Whenever we need super. him, we go to Google Calendar. We just book him and he does all the hard work. It's like so incredibly easy. That's why it's probably called Pretty Easy Podcast. So be heard and have some fun podcasting like us. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. 